Hello, and welcome back to the Diplomacy and Discourse podcast. I'm your host, Amar, and I'm so glad to have you back for another enthralling and thought-provoking episode. Before we start, I want to mention some issues and be frank with all you listeners. As you can clearly tell, it's been a long time since I last published an episode. Researching, writing the scripts, editing the scripts, recording, and then editing the recording and creating the music takes an exorbitant amount of time. On top of that, I have two jobs and I'm a graduate student, which can take priority at times. I've also been dealing with an illness that has kept me somewhat bedridden, and in all sincerity, taking care of my mom, who has also fallen ill. So with all these things occurring in my life, this usually means that I'm rushing to write content, record, edit, and publish on time. I don't want to rush and produce bad content, so with that, I plan to produce new episodes every week, but on different days until I figure out a set schedule again. Sometimes I feel a little disappointed with my work because it is rushed, redundant at times, and lacking depth and quality. And perhaps I can tell that some people who consistently tune in every week cease to now. Maybe it's the content, maybe it's something that's been said, maybe it's not what they've expected, and of course, I haven't produced any episode in such a long time. If that's the case, it is a little disappointing, but I gotta move on. I'm in the process of starting a Patreon account to further support the podcast and create an even better experience for all of you. This will give you an opportunity to directly contribute and play a crucial role in the growth of our podcast. Your support means the world to me, and I'm truly grateful for every single one of you. I'll also expand our presence on Instagram and other social media platforms. These platforms will allow us to connect more deeply, share updates, and engage in meaningful conversations. I encourage you all to give us a follow to stay connected and be part of our growing community when we announce it. This is something that I plan to do for the foreseeable future. I've always wanted to start a podcast about these topics, and I have so many more topics to cover. Even though it's rushed, I really do enjoy making these episodes for you all to listen to. I like covering topics that, to my knowledge, aren't talked about and I hope listeners can resonate with them. I want to bring up ideas and talk about subjects that will make you listeners think about it more with yourselves or with your friends, family, coworkers, or whoever after the episode ends. More thought-provoking episodes will come along with guests for a series of interviews, and I hope you're around for that. Before diving into today's episode, I want to take a moment to address something very important. In the United States, Mental Health Awareness Month and Suicide Prevention Month have long passed, but the significance of these topics extends far beyond just one month. It's crucial that we remain aware and supportive all year round. If you or someone you know is struggling, please remember that you're not alone. Reach out to someone you trust and seek the help you deserve. Lastly, I want to express my sincere gratitude for your continued support and encouragement. Your feedback and engagement means everything to me. If you have any questions or suggestions or want to chat, feel free to hit me up 
at diplomacyanddiscourse at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining me on this journey. Let's continue to spread awareness, support each other, and make a positive impact together. Navigating the complex landscape of conflict resolution in international relations is a journey crucial for upholding global peace and stability. This realm, drawing increased attention since the 1970s, is a tapestry of theory and practice. Woven together by dedicated efforts to bridge the gap, among these, the negotiation project at Harvard University stands out as a beacon where academic knowledge intertwines seamlessly with practical experience. Founded with a mission to harmonize theory and application, the project empowers Harvard students through immersive practices like role-playing, simulations, and seminars. In the pursuit of understanding the intricacies of conflict resolution, the project advocates for negotiation, mediation, and various strategies. It delves deep into the reasons behind conflicts, crafting innovative approaches for peaceful resolutions. The key lies in an interdisciplinary embrace, incorporating political science, psychology, and sociology to unravel the complexities of conflict dynamics. One cornerstone of their approach is principled negotiation, steering away from win-lose mentalities. Instead, it encourages focusing on interests over positions, recognizing common goals, and advocating for fair and unbiased decision-making. These strategies extend beyond the academic realm, resonating significantly in sectors like construction. In the construction industry, effective conflict resolution is not just a desirable skill. It is a cornerstone for project success. Collaboration and communication, inherent to project construction, make conflict resolution indispensable. It encourages satisfaction, timely completion, and adherence to budgets, sparing projects from the pitfalls of disputes, delays, and legal costs. Innovative approaches like collaborative problem-solving, rooted in negotiation principles, are gaining traction, offering a departure from traditional win-lose outcomes and fostering open communication. Zooming out to the global stage, conflict resolution in international relations tackles disputes between nations through diplomatic negotiations, mediation, arbitration, peacekeeping operations, economic incentives, and sanctions. Each method brings its strengths and limitations, their effectiveness hinging on the context and the involved parties. This landscape expands further, transcending individuals or groups to conflict requirements within projects or negotiations. Studies advocate for effective communication and negotiation to untangle conflicting requirements. Notable scholars like Janice Nadler and Itamar Medeiros underscore the importance of applying communication and negotiation to conflict resolution, emphasizing open dialogue and prioritizing requirements. I'll put the link to their work in the description below. A crucial shift away from the traditional win-lose mindset is evident in collaborative problem-solving, facilitated dialogue, and consensus building. These approaches prioritize communication, constructive engagement, and understanding underlying interests, paving the way for mutually acceptable solutions. 
In the African context, conflict resolution takes on a unique flavor, offering employing mediation through impartial third parties. Traditional leaders deeply ingrained in community dynamics play pivotal roles in mediating conflicts, armed with a profound understanding of local contexts, customs, and values. Restorative justice approaches seen in countries like South Africa place healing and reconciliation at the forefront, acknowledging the power of acknowledging harm, apologizing, and seeking forgiveness. Diplomatic negotiations emerge as common thread in resolving conflicts globally, providing a platform for direct communication and understanding between nations. However, the effectiveness of such negotiations can falter in the face of trust issues or deeply rooted ideological differences. In these instances, a mediator or a third party may step in to facilitate discussions and thaw the frozen terrain. Mediation, as a widely used conflict resolution method, comes into play when conflicting parties struggle to find a resolution independently or when a power imbalance exists. It ensures structured and facilitated dialogue, allowing all parties to express concerns and interests equally, fostering understanding and empathy. Africa's mediation scene often involves respected community members or elders, enhancing the effectiveness of the process by leveraging local knowledge and customs. Community-based approaches seen in conflict-affected regions like Palestine, Nagorno-Karabakh, and Kashmir prioritize inclusivity by engaging local communities in dialogue and collaborative problem-solving. Arbitration, a more formal method, involves an impartial third party making a binding decision after hearing arguments from both sides. This method, known for its confidentiality and speed, finds a place alongside peacekeeping operations employed by international organizations. Multilateral mediation processes acknowledge external actors' roles in conflicts, encouraging negotiations and providing tangible incentives. Yet conflict resolution methods alone might not suffice in addressing sustainable development and, let's say, water conservation challenges in conflict-affected regions like Palestine. A comprehensive strategy necessitates addressing social, economic, and political issues alongside the conflict's underlying causes. Collaboration among stakeholders, economic incentives, and sanctions all contribute to conflict resolution though their effectiveness varies. Comprehensive approaches involving diplomatic negotiations, mediation, dialogue, and reconciliation become paramount in conflicts deeply rooted in political or ideological differences. In Iran's case, it serves as a reminder that sanctions may not be universally effective though and can lead to unintended consequences. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict emerges as a poignant example where peacekeeping initiatives can reshape the narrative. Grassroots movements, inclusive of diverse stakeholders, hold the key to building trust, understanding, and empathy between Israelis and Palestinians. A comprehensive analysis of historical, political, and socioeconomic factors is essential to devise lasting solutions that go beyond short-term agreements. 
In the quest for peace in Nagorno-Karabakh, similar comprehensive approaches are essential. The region's historical complexities, ethnic tensions, and territorial disputes requires a delicate balance of economic development, intergroup contact programs, and mediation efforts. The effectiveness of conflict resolution methods hinges on tailoring strategies to specific circumstances. The Kashmir Territory, Israel-Palestine, and the Nagorno-Karabakh region conflicts underline the need to extend efforts beyond traditional diplomatic negotiations. This involves addressing underlying issues and fostering empathy where education and awareness campaigns bridge the understanding gap. A multifaceted and adaptable approach emerges as the crux of international conflict resolution. While third-party facilitators have their place, an inclusive and participatory approach tailored to specific needs fosters mutual respect, understanding, and trust. Striking a balance, recognizing the uniqueness of each conflict, and weaving a strategy that considers historical, cultural, and political contexts is vital. In the intricate dance of international relations, individual behavior becomes a pivotal player in conflict resolution. Willingness to compromise enhances effectiveness, while economic and coercive approaches complement diplomatic efforts strategically. An adaptable approach, integrating various methods and technology-based conflict resolution, facilitates communication, negotiation processes, and transparency. As we delve into the labyrinth of international conflict resolution, the overarching lesson is clear. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. It's an art, a science, and a delicate dance that requires a nuanced understanding of the specific dynamics at play. The journey continues, seeking harmony in a world marked by diversity, disputes, and the shared aspiration for peace. For the rest of this episode, we will examine the link between global peacekeeping and international institutionalism, as well as the United Nations role. We will also be looking at how these organizations handle cases of conflict all around the world and consider that this is related to larger studies about the issues of conflict resolution. We will also be looking into the reasons why conflicts don't get resolved. According to international mediation techniques, a significant portion of the conflicts ends up being a frozen conflict, which indicates that there is a fundamental difference between trying to stop the violence and putting an end to the underlying causes of the conflict. With that being said, conflict resolution is typically defined as the process of addressing the underlying causes of a conflict, while conflict management is the process of managing the situation. When it comes to addressing conflicts, the first thing that most people think about is the patchwork of solutions. Unfortunately, most of the time, these solutions are not designed to resolve the underlying issues of the conflict. The lack of effort that organizations put into addressing the underlying issues of a conflict is one of the main reasons why it doesn't get resolved. This is not because they're lazy or incapable, but because it usually takes a long time to resolve a conflict. We're talking years, decades, or even generations. 
At the risk of sounding flippant, it is also common for people to wait for the generation that initiated the conflict to die out before they can realize how irrational it can be. One of the most important factors that we have to consider when it comes to addressing conflicts is the role of peacekeepers. Usually, military units are deployed to a hot zone to keep two or more groups of people apart. This is similar to how a parent would approach a fight by keeping both of the siblings away from each other without actually knowing what caused the conflict to break out. In a more optimistic view of peacekeeping, there are individuals within this field who believe that there is a better way to resolve conflicts. They believe that instead of just ending the violence, there should be a process that involves reintegrating the communities that were once separated. One of the most challenging aspects of addressing a civil war is making sure that the people who were previously killed by each other get back together as neighbors. This can be done through the establishment of an institutional framework that allows one group to maintain its independence from the central government. This concept aims to think about the various aspects of a conflict, not just the governments that created it. Instead of just punishing the individuals who initiated the conflict, we should also consider the needs of the communities that are affected by it. This is because punishing a nation for something will only prolong a conflict. The peace agreements that were signed following World War I were made to recognize the German nation's role in the outbreak of the conflict. However, this is not the case. Germany was not the primary cause of the conflict, and to imply that it was responsible for the whole thing was very inaccurate. To suggest that the German nation was responsible for the entire war, however, did lead to the formation of resentment and anger which would eventually lead to another war. In the Second World War, peace agreements were made to recognize the role that Germany played in the conflict. This was a legitimation of the country's responsibility as Adolf Hitler was able to mobilize a massive collective force. The peace deals of 1945 were more strategic as they focused more on blaming the Nazi government, saying that we're going to put some of the most prominent leaders in the world on trial and they'll be convicted of committing crimes against humanity. One of the most important factors that we have to consider when it comes to addressing conflicts is the evolution of the concept of conflict resolution. This is because the terms used in studies about conflict resolution have changed from negative to positive. Now, these terms are used to differentiate between two types of agreements. The concept of a negative peace is what we would refer to as the minimum standards that are expected of peacekeeping operations. It involves stopping the violence, preventing the killings, and putting an end to the war. This is a major accomplishment, but it is not the same as a positive peace which aims to solve the problems that led to the hostilities in the first place and put an end to the violence. A negative peace is defined as a situation in which the authorities have failed to resolve the issues that caused the hostilities. 
For instance, if the parents are planning on sending the siblings to their rooms without bringing them together to figure out why they fought in the first place with no attempts to resolve it, then this is a negative piece. So, even though the kids are still screaming and crying in their rooms, you haven't resolved anything yet. The typical approach to addressing conflicts is to try and get the involved parties to stop fighting. If they can do this, then that's all that matters. One significant issue with negative peace is that it can potentially break down in a couple of years if it isn't resolved. This can also occur when the violence resumes in a short span of time. One of the most crucial factors that we have learned about addressing conflicts is the importance of looking into the positive piece. This can include strategies that involve addressing the statuses of various minority groups. A positive piece can take a long time to develop. Negative peace, on the other hand, can only last as long as the violence stops. For instance, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea is a negative peace. Going there to solve any disagreements would require knowing various regulations and lists of people who are coming from the other side of the border. If you plan on crossing the border into North Korea, then you need to behave positively. Doing anything that could provoke the North Koreans will only result in severe punishment from South Korea, but it could also put you in trouble with the authorities in North Korea. The goal then would have to be to regroup, get back to the drawing board, and start putting the pieces back together. Unfortunately, despite the efforts to resolve the conflict, the anger on the other side still persists. This is why it's important that we take a deeper look into the concept of protracted social conflicts. A study of conflict resolution suggests that the underlying causes of the conflict can be traced back to prior issues. For instance, if a war, ethnic cleansing, or civil war were to occur, chances are that there would be many grievances and problems that were not resolved prior to the hostilities. The recent flare-up of violence is merely the tip of the iceberg as the underlying causes of the conflict can be traced back to prior issues. In order to put a stop to the hostilities, people need to study the region and identify the factors that led to the hostilities. This process can help us find ways to put a positive end to conflicts. One of the most important factors that we need to consider when it comes to addressing conflicts is the establishment of a democratic framework. A ceasefire or treaty is not enough to solve the conflict. Instead, a long-term solution requires a strategy that involves both parties, which can accept the terms of an agreement. Although both parties are going to be disappointed with the outcome because they are not going to get everything that they want, they can still walk away from the negotiation with a better understanding of the conditions that they had to meet in order to reach a settlement. This can help pave the way for a more long-term solution. Though the outcome didn't make a huge difference, it is still the right direction in the conflict resolution process beyond simply peacekeeping to peace building. This can highlight the need for both parties to reach a comprehensive agreement that can address the various issues that have been hindering the development of a peaceful society. 
these steps in the right direction are far better than simply deploying UN, US, or even Russian soldiers to the area just to keep both sides at bay. All that would do is leave tensions to rave and would allow both parties to then engage in collective memories about their past actions, which they then use as justification for their current hostilities. If the goal of peacekeeping is to be achieved, then we need to look into various strategies that involve regionalism, power sharing, and institutional integration. We cannot simply revert to the status quo, telling people to live their lives as if a conflict never occurred. Instead, we need to think about new ways of addressing conflicts. When a conflict resolution occurs, it can significantly change the status quo. For instance, some individuals may gain some territory, while others may be forced out of their homes. However, implementing this strategy can be very risky since it dictates that the world will no longer go back to the way it was before the hostilities. To prevent another war from happening, we need to make sure that we are building something that is better than just keeping the peace. Let's start by considering the various factors that have to be considered when it comes to addressing conflicts. If the goal of peacekeeping is to be more than just peacekeeping, then we need to look into the factors that contribute to the development of conflicts. One of the most important pieces of literature that we can consider when it comes to addressing conflicts is the work of Edward Azar titled Management of Protracted Social Conflict. The book was released at a very good time, as the world was still celebrating the end of the Cold War and the collapse of communism. However, the reality of the situation soon became clear. The book looked into the various factors that contributed to the development of conflicts. Some of these included the war in Yugoslavia, the genocide in Rwanda, the rise of Al-Qaeda, and the spread of radical ideas about governments, such as the Taliban in Afghanistan. The situation has become much worse as time goes on, making it painfully clear that the solutions that were used to resolve conflicts during the previous decades are no longer effective. In his book, Edward Azar argues that prolonged social conflicts are complex and interrelated. One of the first factors that we need to consider is the prominence of these issues within states. For instance, civil wars and secessionist movements are some of the factors that have been contributing to the development of these conflicts. These factors can force us to rewrite the conventional wisdom on the subject of state-level social conflicts. In his book, Edward Azar talks about the various factors that have been contributing to these issues. For instance, the increasing number of communal groups that are fighting for their rights can be considered a contributing factor to the development of conflicts. Besides these, other factors such as the level of government control and the state's overall condition are also considered when it comes to addressing conflicts. If the conditions that are affecting the development of social conflicts are severe, then we can consider states that are failing or weak. These states are typically characterized by violent confrontations between different groups. If the conditions are not improving, then we can also consider states that are actively engaged in demobilizing and disadvantaging a certain ethnic group. These factors can cause states to collapse, and then civil war can break out. If left unchecked, 
these types of internal conflicts can easily spread to other countries, which could lead to more aggressive powers being brought in. The concept of protracted social conflicts refers to issues that are based on cultural, racial, religious, or ethnic groups. If states are working towards establishing democracy, it's easy to understand why these types of conflicts would develop if they're emerging from authoritarian regimes or from long-term single-party rule. One political faction within an authoritarian regime can effectively control all of the people in a state. If this group has been identified as a specific religious, cultural, or ethnic group, then there's no way to prevent it from disadvantaging or demobilizing others. When democratization takes place and the pressure due to globalization intensifies, a country will have to modernize and expand its operations to compete in the global marketplace. If the government is urged to do so by powerful nations such as the UK, USA, Germany, or France, then aggrieved groups may use this opportunity to assert their rights and privileges which have been denied them in the past. So in a hypothetical country, the central authorities would agree to extend cultural identity and minority rights to groups that have been aggrieved. Unfortunately, this doesn't happen in the real world though. Instead, the authorities would do everything in their capacity to prevent groups from mobilizing. In an era of globalization, where information about groups and individuals has become more accessible, they are more likely to mobilize and make their names known in international media. Let's say the Kurds in Turkey, Albanians in Serbia, and the Armenians in Azerbaijan are allowed to make their case for regional autonomy and independence. If all else fails, they can also declare independence or even outright territorial secession. For instance, if Crimea breaks away from Ukraine, then within 24 hours, they can pass a law that would force the country to be annexed to Russia. So if the Armenians of Azerbaijan, Albanians, Serbians, or Kurds want to be part of a new country, then these are likely to be the factors that contribute to the development of conflicts. These conflicts are also based on various racial, religious, and cultural factors. Unfortunately, these conflicts are likely to be triggered by various factors, such as the lack of proper infrastructure and human resources. A group of people from the aforementioned region is likely to make their grievances known in a context where they are not just discriminated against, but are also being systematically ignored. This is because their central authorities are determined to demobilize and disenfranchise all of us, which means that they have no other options. They are, therefore, likely to resort to arms struggle and seek international support for their campaign for self-determination. This will be a clear indication that the nation in question can no longer govern properly. It would open up a debate about the nature of weak and strong states, as well as the concept of failed ones. A lot of countries around the world look like they are on the verge of becoming a failed state. Aside from its weak government and unstable political situation, other factors, such as its disputed ideologies and fragile legitimacy, can also prevent it from effectively addressing the needs of its people. If the group that is aggrieved has some form of leverage or international linkage, then they can take their grievances to a different level. 
they can then be marked into a different cause, such as the desire for democracy and freedom, which is similar to what America was looking for when it came to the British, which has a chance of generating what is called a neighborhood effect. Neighborhood effects occur when one aggrieved group galvanizes, moralizes, and mobilizes another aggrieved group in another country. For instance, 15 or so years ago when the Ba'ath Party in Iraq collapsed following the fall of Saddam Hussein's government, there was a significant moment in the country's history. During this period, the Kurds of Iraq started to flex their muscles and seek greater autonomy. This had significant implications for the Kurdish populations in Syria and Turkey. Suppose a group within a region can capitalize on the global sympathy and support that it can get from the international community. If that group supports secessionism, independence, or self-determination, then this situation could create a security dilemma. Even if it can be supported by a single group, why shouldn't the same thing happen to other groups? If Yugoslavia disintegrates, then why shouldn't Romania and Iraq break up? If the Kosovo Albanians decide to break away from Serbia and the Armenians of Azerbaijan also do the same, then why shouldn't the Russians do the same to Ukraine? If the separatists in Georgia decide to break away from the country, then why shouldn't it be the same for other groups in the region? This concept creates a Pandora's box effect. This type of behavior adds to the understanding of a prolonged social conflicts, as it demonstrates that these issues are not only about the war itself, but also about the political and economic structures that are not democratic. Although it is possible to stop a war, just because it has been stopped doesn't mean that everything will be fine. In addition to war, prolonged social conflicts also have complex underlying issues. These include the factors that triggered the emergence of terrorism, civil wars, and secessionism. Even though these issues don't happen for no reason, they still have significant underlying issues that have to be considered when trying to resolve them. This is why it's important that policymakers and other experts consider these issues when trying to address conflicts. This is just like a marriage counselor seeking to solve disputes between married couples. It's not much of a marriage counselor if they don't want to hear any of the problems that initiated the couples to fight. This is because apart from being a licensed psychologist, a marriage counselor or therapist also wants to know what brought you to their facility in the first place. When it comes to prolonged social conflicts, the underlying issues have to be considered in order to develop a lasting peace. This is because when negotiations take place, they are often sponsored by large countries such as Russia or the United States. This means that the issues related to prolonged social conflicts have to be identified in order to provide a positive peace. So now let's take a quick look at the records of peacekeeping and conflict resolution. Since 1945, international efforts towards finding sustainable solutions to conflicts have been an integral part of the global community. Following the Second World War, the international community redoubled its efforts to address various global problems. Even though various powerful states such as the US, France, the UK, and even Russia can potentially lead the way in addressing these issues, negotiations on these issues must be conducted within the framework of international law and the UN. 
If a powerful nation decides that it will take on its own responsibility to mediate a conflict or an internal conflict, then it should consider the pre-existing international legal and precedent principles when making decisions. In the past, it was common for the president of the US or president of Russia to walk into a meeting and say, alright, you get this, you get that, and I get this and then claim the conflict is resolved. Nowadays, this type of behavior is no longer possible. Even though these massive powers still exist, they should be linked to international law and precedent in order to make informed decisions. Since 1990, conflicts and violence have mainly been internal affairs instead of interstate. These include civil wars, genocide, and ethnic cleansing. Although we may have wished that the world could do something about these issues before 1990, as long as these are internal affairs, there is no quick fix. This is due to the fact that if the other nations get involved, then it might be regarded as an invasion. Since 1990, that's no longer been the issue though. The US took it upon herself to address the issues in Bosnia and Kosovo, even involving themselves in the Middle East by invading Iraq. Although it is considered an invasion, some may argue that it is still within the scope of humanitarian intervention to stop the killing and prevent further violence. When the bipolar system of the Cold War collapsed, the US was free to do whatever it wanted since it had a decade or so of unipolar hegemony. So they ended up setting a precedent for themselves and other countries when they got involved in Bosnia and Kosovo in the 90s. This precedent gave other countries a justification, like Russia, to get involved in Georgia in the 2000s and cause the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan that recently flared up within the last several months. The most important thing that we have to understand about the progress that has been made in addressing conflicts is the fact that the solutions that have been tried have been designed to be inclusive for both winners and losers. Things get a bit complicated once you realize that what usually occurred in the past, you would pick the winning side, give them the leverage, allow them to dictate the peace terms, and the third party, the one that manages everything, sort of sits back and makes sure they don't get too carried away. In today's world, third party arbiters are not only responsible for ensuring that the parties to a conflict walk away from the table with something to show for their efforts, but they also play a role in ensuring that the outcomes is not influenced by the leverage that the winning side has over the other. For instance, if a conflict is about internal issues, such as the division of territories or the emergence of a separatist movement, third-party mediators often act as the intermediary between the parties. They will typically try to resolve the issues by saying that the territorial boundaries of the parent country will not change. One of the most important factors that third-party mediators consider when it comes to addressing a conflict is the autonomy that the aggrieved groups should have. This can be granted to them so that they can maintain their autonomy and claim that they are independent entities. The goal of third-party mediators is to help the parties involved reach a settlement that is both acceptable for both parties and beneficial for the long-term development of the peace process. Sometimes it's a win-win situation for both parties as the groups come up with an agreement that's both fair and reasonable. 
On the other hand, it can also be a disappointment when the parties don't get what they want. During the 2020s, the rise of conflicts between states and increasingly within them has been on the rise. In spite of the international efforts that have been made to address these issues, the flare-ups that have been occurring in the last decade or so have been more frequent and could potentially spread to other regions. Whether it is the Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict, the conflict in Kosovo, the Ukrainian conflict, the war between Hamas and Israel, whichever is threatening, the flare-ups that have been happening in the last decade or so have been more frequent and could potentially spread to other regions. Because of the nature of these conflicts, they tend to take the lives of innocent people and become more dangerous to international security. In addition to the Islamic State and the Islamic military, I'm also talking about the Russian-Ukrainian conflict as well as the conflict in the South China Sea with Taiwan. Voluntary mercenaries. There's even been voluntary mercenaries from various countries that are traveling to eastern Ukraine to fight for either the Ukrainian or Russian forces. One particular plane that was traveling from the Balkans to Ukraine had even Croatians and Serbian militants on it. The Serbians were going to be fighting for the Russians, while the Croatians were going to be supporting the Ukrainians. In Syria, Iraq and other failed states, there also has been reports of recruiting mercenaries for their own use. During the recent conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, over 200 militants from Syria were flown by Turkey to perform dirty deeds in Azerbaijan. Turkey was able to profit from this conflict. More so, several Serbian and Greek mercenaries participated in the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. There were also rumors of Kurds joining the fight as well. The emergence of these types of conflicts has become democratized, allowing people to participate in them even if they don't have a military background. Besides being caused by international factors, many of these conflicts also come with humanitarian issues. As a result, we have witnessed instances of genocide and ethnic cleansing being carried out by groups after they have taken over. The recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which had been going on for over 30 years, resulted in the withdrawal of Armenians from some of the areas that they had previously controlled. Due to the actions of Azeri forces, a mass exodus of Armenians was carried out. Many of them were fleeing from the areas they had been forced to leave, fearful of being executed, or even raped, or killed. In the age of global interconnectedness, we may believe that we can all live in harmony. However, as more groups take over regions from other groups, the demographics of these communities can change rapidly. The lack of effective political and organizational leadership can also contribute to the spread of chaos. One of the most common factors that contribute to the spread of conflicts is the presence of external powers and states. We're talking about proxy wars. For instance, in the Syrian civil war, which started in 2011, the US was initially involved along with Iran and Syria. However, after Turkey started supporting different groups in the war, Russia became involved. This shows that countries with their own armies are willing to support other states in order to win. 
We also stop thinking about the future state of Syria and think more about which sponsoring country is going to win. Now the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia has been referred to as a proxy war. For the last three decades, Azerbaijan has not been able to regain control over the Nagorno-Karabakh region due to Armenia's control over the land. Then, after being given a blank check from Turkey, Azerbaijan suddenly developed a robust backbone and was able to carry out its objectives in just a month which they couldn't achieve in the previous three decades. Russia also got involved in the conflict as it reportedly planned on working with the Armenian side. If Russia fought for Armenia, it could well be defending the Artstak region, and it could also claim other territories. This type of behavior is something that we should be considering more and more. Despite the various efforts that have been made in addressing conflicts, we are still in the midst of a series of obstacles that prevent us from achieving a successful resolution. This is why it's very important that we continue to keep in mind the various truths about the conflict resolution process. Some of these truths should be pointed out to people who are planning on going into the field. They have to understand what is going on around them, and they have to be aware of the current conditions. The first truth that we need to consider when it comes to addressing conflicts is the management of conflicts. This conflict is not just a cliché, as it involves multiple steps and procedures that can be carried out to resolve the issues. Throughout the world, there have been numerous instances of efforts towards addressing conflicts that have been happening for decades. For instance, there have been numerous instances of peacekeeping operations carried out by various international organizations such as the UN, the US, Russia, and China. These efforts have been able to prevent further conflicts. However, they do not address the underlying issues that have caused the conflicts. The second inconvenient truth is that negotiated solutions are never able to produce the best outcomes for all parties involved. For instance, if we consider two groups, which are known as Group A and Group B, and they are both seeking a solution to their conflict, both of them will be going into the negotiation with the goal of winning. Expectations are high when it comes to the outcome of a negotiated solution. Even if it is the US, Russia, or the UN, third-party arbiters will still find a middle ground that both parties can agree on. Unfortunately, the optimal outcome for both parties involved would require them to give up completely. This means that a negotiated solution would not be able to produce the best possible outcome. For the individuals involved, it would be very disappointing. The third inconvenient truth about third-party arbitration is that it is almost always necessary for the parties involved to participate in it. It is very rare for individuals in a conflict to put their grievances aside and engage in some form of reconciliation. In most cases, it is necessary for both parties involved to participate in third-party arbitration. However, the main issue with this process is that it is usually not able to provide the best possible outcome. Instead, it is usually focused on finding a solution that both parties can agree on and that doesn't disappoint them, or worse, might be somewhat loyal, sympathetic, and supportive of one side over the other. Even though third-party arbitration is often necessary, it can also come with various risks and liabilities. 
For instance, if the UN or the EU decides to establish a solution that is biased in favor of one side, this could very well affect the outcome of the arbitration. The fourth truth is that gains are never zero-sum. With that in mind, one might believe that the outcome is merely relative. Everyone is expecting to get what they want from the negotiation table. If the outcome is merely a fraction of what they desired, the next thing on their mind is worrying about other issues down the line. If the outcome is always relative, then both parties have the benefit from the negotiations. However, this may not be enough to get all of the involved parties to the table. It can't be stressed enough how important it is that all of the parties involved in the conflict are brought to the negotiation table. It's so significant as it shows that both parties are willing to compromise. After all, if you go to the negotiating table, you already stated that you're willing to discuss various issues. However, what are the concessions that you're willing to make in order to achieve more non-negotiable goals? Before you start the negotiation, it is important that both parties identify the red lines that they're willing to avoid. This will help determine what kind of concessions they're willing to make. If these are included in your decision-making process, then the outcome of the negotiation can be influenced by both parties' desires. It may seem like a win-win situation if both parties agree to discuss various issues. If both parties are nationalists and hardliners, then the outcome may end up being a lose-lose situation. The only people who can actually claim to have won are the arbiters. The fifth inconvenient truth is that proposed solutions to ending wars and putting an end to the killing would likely lead to more problems. From the perspective of the mediators, your objective is to achieve an end to the hostilities and stop the killings by any means necessary. The process of ending a war involves getting both parties involved in the negotiating table and stopping the killing. Usually, the solution is to set the stage for a peaceful resolution by stating that there will be no change in the status quo. However, this usually means that the parties will have to stay in control of the areas that they have previously captured. Before the war can be stopped, both parties must first determine what they need to do to end it. This can be done through the negotiating table at the expenditure of concessions. If your goal is to prevent further deaths, it might be advisable to consider other issues that could cause problems in the future. The state may also be jeopardized if you give in to the temptation to end the war and stop the killing, which could weaken the institution's internal dynamics. Various proposals must be presented in order to try and sway one side towards a more collaborative approach. The sixth inconvenient truth is that commitment to stability and peace depends on the interests of governments. This is problematic since the individuals who signed the peace agreement could not represent the state in the future. People who commit to such agreements typically risk their political careers due to how they can potentially affect the longevity of the groups involved. 
Once they return home, the individuals who signed the peace agreements can be at risk of no longer being in power. Instead, nationalists or hardliners can replace them. They might try to gamble away the benefits of the agreement by not honoring it. It's not enough to just have people sign the agreement as you also need to implement it for generations to come. Since there's a high likelihood that the people who signed it could be replaced by individuals who are more belligerent or opportunistic, this agreement should last for a lifetime. And finally, the last inconvenient truth is that promoting peace involves different activities from practicing peace. Some individuals believe that all they have to do is voice support for some kind of peace agreement and say that it must be implemented and enforced. They also hope that everybody follows the rules of the game. Getting people to follow the peace agreement is not as easy as it sounds. Unless you can leverage the other parties to ensure that they do, nothing will be achieved. This means that even if both parties agree to the conditions, it's not enough to simply say that they have preserved peace. After you've reached the halfway mark, it's time to start thinking about implementing the peace and making sure that everybody follows the terms of the agreements. This is especially the case when both parties are involved and both parties have to act on it. And so, the seven inconvenient truths presented here are interrelated with two critical issues. First, peace can only be established through regulation and enforcement. It is not a tool for self-interest and those who designed the treaty had to get everybody on board the agreement. Now that everybody has signed, the task is to implement the treaty. If the goal is to establish peace, then everybody has to be on top of the issues that need to be resolved in order to implement this agreement. This includes deploying peacekeeping troops, holding both parties accountable, and threatening to resume hostilities if one of the side defects occurs. Unfortunately, many of these agreements have already been ignored once everyone has returned home. One of the biggest issues that comes with being a third-party arbiter is that you can't just enforce the agreement. You have to work through both parties' governments. This means that you have to make the people who signed the treaty look like they are doing it voluntarily. One of the most important factors that comes into play when it comes to implementing a peace agreement is the ability of both parties to address the underlying issues that have been contributing to the hostilities. This is because if the agreement is only going to be effective, then everybody has to make sure that they are taking the necessary steps to address these issues. Today, there is no need for any losers or winners in this world. For the people who are actually involved in the conflict, regardless of their emotional or cultural backgrounds, both parties have to be considered as if they are trying to gain something. If both parties are absolutely committed to preventing the other party from having a day to enjoy, then I'm not sure that this will work. This is why third-party arbitration is necessary to ensure that the peace agreement is implemented effectively. Usually, a lot of people sign peace agreements. This usually happens with the help of the UN, the EU, or even Russia, the United States, or China. All three have been relatively good players when it comes to making sure that some sort of agreement is implemented. However, you have to make sure that the people who signed the document are actually committed to implementing it. You can't just get people to sign the document, shake hands, go home thinking everything is going to be great. It won't happen. 
A third-party arbiter has to own up to the responsibility of making sure that the peace agreement is implemented and that various values and attitudes are changed. So this episode aims to introduce you listeners to the various issues that are involved when it comes to addressing international conflicts. It also covers the ways in which these problems can be solved through negotiations. Thank you again for listening, and I apologize again for this huge delay in uploading this episode. I appreciate you all, I appreciate your patience, and I hope to see you next week.